But uh, we are going to look at Psalm 14 this morning, and you know, if you've seen that commercial on TV with the, uh, the little beeper that the little lady wears around her neck, the necklace, and she falls to the ground, and the, the live reenactment, she's laying there going, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, and then she's supposed to push the beeper and people are supposed to come and rescue her, right? Well, that's kind of what we're looking at today in Psalm 14. We are looking at the, the depravity of man, the total depravity of man. Um, and it's really kind of a, a watershed theological issue. I've been looking for a church now for quite some time, and as I have talked to people about uh, doctrine and theology, and they've grilled me uh, on what my beliefs are, uh, it, it often has come down to uh, one issue that really sort of sticks in the crawl of my throat. And I'll tell you what it is. It's the issue of regeneration. And, and that is the new birth. And so let me, let me just have you think about this with me this morning. You're sensible people. Think about this. If man is totally corrupted, totally sinful, totally fallen, dead in his trespasses and sins, then how can he muster enough faith to believe in Christ? The answer is he can't until God does something first, right? The new birth happens first, and then we express our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are born from above, right? We are born, God bears his children, and then we exercise faith. The only part we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary, if I could say it that way. We are saved by grace through faith, and that, the whole grace through faith, that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, right? So this morning as we look at this uh, Psalm 14, this, this theological watershed, what I want you to see is that man is totally lost, totally helpless, totally unable to save himself. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. And apart from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would remain that way. So if you're not there already, turn with me. And, and just understand that also that in church history, this has been a huge debate for centuries. Um, in the early church, in the 300s, when you were dealing with Augustine and Pelagius uh, at the Council of Ephesus, they, they argued over man's ability to save himself, the issue of free will. Uh, when we got to the Reformation, we had... Erasmus and Martin Luther arguing over the same issue. Uh, now we have what's known as semi-Pelagianism. And, and in churches today, uh, we call it decisional regeneration. Uh, that is, they, they will try to grease the skids. They will, they will have all the music tap into your emotions. They will, they will play on you and feed on you. And, and, and what they'll do is try to get you to walk the aisle and and come to the altar and make a profession of faith. But, but is that how it's supposed to be done? Are we supposed to manipulate people into believing? Can man believe apart from the grace of God? 
And these are huge, weighty issues. And I think, uh, you know, this is kind of a heavy message. We're talking about sin. We're talking about our lostness, if you will. But like when you go into a jeweler to, to pick out an engagement ring or a diamond ring, that what do they do? They set it on black velvet, right? And, and they set it there so that it shines brightly. And so what we want to see is the gospel against the backdrop of our own sin and depravity. It makes it all that much more glorious. Okay? So Psalm 14, if you're not there already, let's read through it once and, and we'll see where we go with this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Now, this psalm is uh, obviously uh, written by King David. You can see that there. It's a psalm of King David. It's, it's written at some unidentifiable point during his ministry, during his reign, if you will. And uh, it, it plays a pivotal role among the psalms because uh, in the first 41 psalms, this one shows mankind at his worst. Uh, and, and if you want, you can go over to Psalm 53 and I won't stay there. I just want you to see that it's almost identical. And I will point out the places where there's a slight difference, but it's, it's unusual that this psalm is repeated twice in the Psalter, almost word for word. And you can see that there. Uh, from this text, Psalm 14 this morning, what we're going to see is four truths about the doctrine of depravity and the reason we're going to do that is we're going to want to see our need for the deliverance of God in his son, Jesus Christ. We want to see our need for deliverance. So four truths about depravity. And the first one that we're going to see in this text is that man's sin is personal. Man's sin is personal. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. And so the fool's depravity is personal because it's where? Where is it? Speak to me. It's in his heart, right? It's not his environment that makes him such, it comes from the inside out. The inside out. And he says to himself, Lord, I don't believe you're there. I don't want to acknowledge you. I'm not going to submit my life to you. I'm going to say there is no God. Now, this is practical atheism we're talking about here. This guy doesn't think that 
uh, God doesn't exist. It's not that kind of uh, disallowment. What he's saying is, yeah, I know you're there. I can see you in nature. I know you're there, but I'm not going to submit to you. There is no God, and I'm not going to submit to your authority in my life. Now, when we talk about the heart, biblically, what we're talking about is not the blood-pumping organ in your chest. What are we talking about? We're talking about the affections, the desires, what motivates you, your will, all of it wrapped up, what, what causes you to do what you do, what motivates you in life. It's, it's the will. And the will, Martin Luther said, is in bondage. It's either being ridden by Satan or it's being ridden by Christ, but either way it's being ridden. Our will is corrupted because of the fall of Adam. And so our hearts are corrupted. The heart is the seat of human desires, if I could say it that way. And so we need to answer this question, who is this fool, right? Scripture talks about a lot of different kind of fools. Uh, you could look through the Proverbs and you would see that there are uh, Proverbs 14, 15. There's the unwise guy. You could see uh, Proverbs 10, 8. There's a silly or stupid guy. Uh, you could see the madman in Proverbs 26, 18. And then you see the fool here. And the fool is the one who just refuses to acknowledge God in his life. The word um, kind of falls in the middle of that range between stupid and silly and a madman. Somewhere in the middle is this fool. And this fool, uh, the idea here carries the idea of relaxed or powerless. He's, he's unable to do anything to please God. So what we're really talking about, as I said, is practical atheism. Uh, one writer said this. He said, he who denies God contests not the existence of God, but the concrete activity of God. He doesn't want to acknowledge God's rulership, not his existence. Everybody, everybody knows God exists, right? That's general revelation. He sees God's handiwork, and he can't deny there's God. He's a fool if he does. But the text says they're corrupt. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds, verse 1. And so this, this lack of understanding on the part of the fool, this, this lack of desire to submit to God results in activity or behavior that is corrupted. Sin. He, he refuses to deal with his authoritative judge over his life. And, and the word corrupt here, it's an important word. Uh, it graphically describes the nature of man's offenses against God, and it, and it means literally he's ruined or he's destroyed. He's, he's corrupted. It's like bad software <laughs> for you who are in the computer field out there. Are you engineers? There, somebody threw a wrench in the machine and it no work. Uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not right. It's broken. Isaiah 64, 6, we've uh, probably all memorized this. All of our works are like what? 
filthy rags. Now, I don't want to get overly graphic here, but that term for filthy rags literally means menstrual cloths. Man's heart is desperately sick. You know who said that? Jeremiah. Jeremiah said that, 17.9. Mark 7.21. For from within, out of the heart, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, the thefts, the murders, the adulteries. From where? We're not victims of our culture. We're not, it's not our family's fault. Where do these evil things come from? Again, not the blood pumping organ. What are we talking about? We're talking about the will, the seat of man's desires, the affections, the cravings. They come from the inside and they come out. Not the outside in like psychology would tell us. You're not a victim of your environment. You're a victim of your own sin, to be sure. And I'm not saying people certainly don't have difficult situations in life that influence them, but their response to those situations comes from where? Comes from the inside out. Now notice uh, in the text the writers shift away from singular to plural. Right? He talks about the fool initially, but then he says they. You see that? It's singular, the fool, and then it goes to they, which means it includes all of mankind who reject God, all of sinful mankind, all the fools. It's they. It's all of mankind. There is no one, he reiterates it, there is no one, verse 1, who does good. Now, in Hebrew, John and I, I think, started seminary together in Hebrew, and I'm surprised I remembered any of it, but there's this little thing called a particle of non-existence. You remember that? I'm going to test you. See, he doesn't remember it, so it doesn't exist. A particle of non-existence. It's the Hebrew word ain. Ain't no thing, right? Ain. Um, It's a particle of non-existence, and it means literally, there is no. It doesn't exist. There is no. They don't exist. Among the fools, there is no one who does what? Good. There is no one who does good. Literally, not to get overly grammatical on you, but I like grammar. I like grandpa too, but I like grammar. Uh, I have a dry sense of humor. You're going to have to work with me a little bit. Um, it's, it's a participle. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is there's not a doer of good. It's describing the guy by his activity. There is not, literally not a doer of good on this planet. There isn't. They don't exist. So, so let me kind of summarize this for you here. The, the psalmist, he's, he's evaluating the fool, and what he says is that his personal uh, rejection of God internally results in his bad behavior externally, right? And 
and it renders him personally culpable, guilty before God. He is guilty. Uh, And it's not simply one fool that we're talking about. It's all of mankind. All men are equally condemned because of the thoughts and the intentions of their hearts. Now, you may have heard, uh, again, psychology telling you, well, it's not your thoughts that are wicked, it's when you act on them. What do you think? Is that a true statement? No. The thoughts are bad too, folks. The thoughts are bad too. And, and if you're anything like me, those thoughts are running around in your head all the time, continually condemning you. That's what Martin Luther's problem was. That's how he stumbled on the gospel during the Reformation. He'd go into the confessional, and five minutes later, he wanted to go back in. He was irritating the priests because he knew he was guilty, and he couldn't figure out how to cleanse his conscience. And one writer put it this way. He said he's like, like a man winding up a dark tower, going up the stairwell, and he, he reached out to steady himself and grabbed onto a rope and rung the bell of the gospel. He, he, he realized the truth of the gospel, that it's not his works that are being evaluated, it's whose? Christ's. We don't have anything to offer God. It is by faith alone in Christ that we're saved. One writer said this, the most eloquent proof of the true existence of God is the very fact that the wicked must constantly soothe his conscience by declaring that there is no God. That proves that he exists because people are constantly trying to repress the knowledge of him. It's like that little kid. Well, you guys have kids. You know what it's like. They plug their ears and they sit there and they go, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Right? That's how we are with God. I don't want to acknowledge that you're there. I don't want to acknowledge you exist. I'm not going to submit to your authority over me. Neener, neener, neener. And that's what we are like. Now write this down. The wicked are controlled by their hearts. The righteous control their hearts. You skim the book of Proverbs, and the one thing you're going to walk away with is that a fool is carried away by his passions. The righteous are self-controlled, right? Isn't self-control one of the fruit of the Spirit? The wicked are controlled by their hearts. The righteous control them by God's grace and with the Spirit's help. Now let me just say, for application's sake, you may not directly deny the existence of God, but you might live like he doesn't exist. That's what practical atheism is, right? He's there and you know he's there, but you don't want to submit to his authority over your life. You want to do what you want to do. When people say you need to accept Jesus into your heart, what are they saying? Is there a little place in there where I stick him? I mean, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means, except Jesus into your heart. 
I think I know what it means. I think I know what they're after. And the idea is to allow your affections to come under the rule and the submission and faith in Christ so that you're no longer living your own life, but you're living life in Christ. I think that's what they're trying to say. But I don't really know what accept Jesus into your heart means. What we're really talking about is surrendering your affections, giving up, laying down your arms, laying down your idols, and trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. That's what we're talking about. The lordship of Christ. So let me ask you a question. How's your thought life? How's your prayer life? I read some statistics. Most people average about three minutes of prayer a week, mostly during mealtimes. How's your prayer life? Do you believe in God? Do you say that he's there, but you live contradictory? See, this, should, this should hit us right where we live, folks. What drives your will? What drives your thoughts? What drives your actions? Is it Christ? Is it submission to him? Or is it that corrupted old man, that corrupted old heart? The heart is deceitful. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? There's an old saying that if you sow a thought, you will reap an action. And if you sow an action you'll reap a habit. And if you sow a habit, you will reap a character. And if you sow a character long enough, beloved, you will reap a destiny. So the question is this morning, are you living the life of a fool? I mean, you can regularly attend church, for sure. You can, you can be a member you can read your Bibles, you can sing all the songs, but you can still be living like a fool. Do you acknowledge there's a God and then deny him by your actions and your desires? What does your heart say? What does your heart say? So the first truth about depravity that we learn from this text is that Man's sin is personal. Second, truth about depravity, God's sight is perfect. God's sight is perfect. Verse 2, Yahweh, the Lord, has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. This is really the crux of the passage here. Uh, while the fool is down here on earth, this little ant looking up at God and saying, I don't believe you exist, God. God is looking down from heaven upon the sons of men out of his window, if you will, and he's evaluating mankind, and what's his evaluation? It's not good news. It's not good news at all. There's nobody who does good. He's looking for goodness, and he can't find it. Uh, Notice in the text, if you will, that God's name is placed forward. Yahweh, 
from the heavens looks down. That's not how we would normally organize a sentence. But the reason it's done that way is to, to help you understand the contrast in evaluators. Here's the little ant evaluating God, and here's God evaluating man. Here's God's response to that statement, right? You don't exist, God. Oh, yeah? Well, here I am, and I'm watching you. Uh, that's kind of the point that's being made here. The verb has looked down in Hebrew is hishkif. And what it means uh, literally is the idea of like standing out a window and like looking down. It's, it's kind of looking at God almost as a man, uh, big word, anthropomorphically. It's looking at God as a man, like he's, like he's looking out a window, he's stretching, he's bending out, and he's evaluating mankind to see if there's anybody who's good. And this is a, this is a big point here. Uh, by the way, if you want to just check on that word, it's not used very often, but 2 Kings 9.30, uh, you don't have to turn there now, but um, Jezebel's death, you'll remember that. She was looking out the window, and she fell out the window and fell to the ground, and the dogs ate her, and it wasn't a pretty picture. So that's the idea that we have here. Now, God's looking out the window, and he's looking for good, and he can't find any. Anybody who understands, anybody who seeks after him. So what does that tell you about the whole seeker movement? What does that tell you about Saddleback? Can we, can we make church nice enough to, to sort of socialize people into the gospel? We just, have to, we just have to make everything nice enough so that they'll come and they'll just kind of be a part of it. And, and yay, we've converted them. Is that how we get into the kingdom? No, I don't think so. Because there's never any talk about sin or the man's lostness or his helpless estate, right? He's, he's broken and he needs fixed. And he needs righteousness and he doesn't have it. This, this text is really interesting in the Hebrew. I love Hebrew poetry. Uh, I, I, I don't know why I was psychotic, I guess, but I think it's really cool. Um, but when the Hebrews wanted to emphasize something, sometimes they would make the words rhyme. And so you get a similar sounding word. We do it in our poetry too, don't we? To emphasize a point maybe, we'll have some things rhyme. Well, the word corrupt, hishkitu in the Hebrew, uh, rhymes with abominable, which is hitivu. And, and then the word has looked down is hishkif. And so, it may not sound similar to you, but uh, hishkitu, hitivu, and hishkif, they all sound the same, but they're totally opposite ideas. One is the corruptness and the abominable deeds of mankind, the first two words, and then the last one is God looking down and evaluating. And so, what they're trying to emphasize here is the, uh-oh, was that my notes? <coughs> Good thing I number my pages. I learned that a long time ago. The, the thing they want you to see is that contrast. God's looking down, and what's he find? He finds corruptness. He finds abominable deeds. He finds no good. God seeks men. Men don't seek God. That's the point. Now, Charles Spurgeon, I'm sure most of you have heard of him, 
uh, he's a, a wordsmith, a, a master of the, of the uh, picturesque language, if you will. Listen to what he said. He said, Behold the eyes of omniscience ransacking the globe and prying among every people and nation. He who is looking down knows the good, is quick to discern it, would be delighted to find it. But as he views all the unregenerate children of men, his search is fruitless. For, all, for of all the race of Adam, no unrenewed soul is other than an enemy to God and goodness. God is tearing apart the globe, ransacking it, looking for somebody good, would love to find somebody good. But alas, there isn't a one. There isn't a one. See, the, the truth is, you know, we, we may compare ourselves to the people next to us or the people out on the street. We, we may try to compare ourselves in some sort of self-evaluation to feel better about ourselves. But the reality is, that's not what this passage is about. It's not comparative self-evaluation. Who's doing the evaluating? God. That's the only one that really matters is God's evaluation, not our own. And in his evaluation, there's nobody that can stand or live up to his scrutinizing gaze. God is perfect in all of his attributes, and we are polluted in all of ours. That's the reality. And by the way, this is not the first kind of evaluation that God has ever done. Uh, you'll remember, and the psalmist would have been familiar with these, the, uh, the evaluations that were followed by temporal judgments in the Old Testament. You remember these? Uh, before the flood, Genesis 6, what was God's evaluation of mankind back then? All the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. Right? Uh, what about Genesis 11, the confusion of the languages? Why did God create cultures and languages? Because of sinful mankind. Right? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18. You remember that story. Lord, uh, uh, please, if there's 50 righteous, don't destroy. Okay, I won't destroy the city for 50 righteous. How about 40? How about 30? How about 10? How about 20? <laughs> no. How about if there's just 10 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? Sure, I'll spare it. Were there 10 righteous people in the city? No, there weren't. You know how the story ends. Uh, these truths are, are beloved, they're, they're designed to humble us. They're designed, if I could use, we're in a baseball stadium here, so we want to level the playing field, right? We're all on the same level. We're all in the same bad shape. We're all as bad off as we could be. Some of us are worse than others in living out their sinful desires, but we're all as bad off as we could be apart from Christ. That's the truth of the matter. How do we stack up to God's holiness? Well, there's, there's three immediate applications I can think of here, and, and the first one is this, that we, we really shouldn't judge one another, right? And when I say that, what I mean is uh, we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than, than we ought. 
We're all sinners, saved by grace. You need to think of this place as more of a hospital than a temple. Right? We're all sinners, saved by grace. Second, evangelism, uh, compassion, mercy uh, toward the lost, those who are struggling with their sin. How should we, how should we view the people out there, our mission field. They need the gospel, right? They're desperately ill, and they need Christ, just like we need Christ. And so it should humble our hearts. It should, it should create an urgency for us to share the gospel of Christ. Uh, apart from Christ, what's going to happen to these people? My wife and I have a kind of a running joke because when we go to Disneyland, I look around, happiest place on earth, and what do I say? I say, you know, most of the people here are probably going to hell. Happiest place on earth, and I can't get it out of my head. I see these people laying in caskets, not knowing Christ. And it disturbs me. It haunts me. You only get one shot at it, right? You only get one shot at it. What about parenting? You know, you look at these little creatures that God has blessed you with, and I love children. Jonathan Edwards used to call them cute little vipers. They're sinners. They're slaves to their sin. And you can't parent them in such a way that you can if you do everything right, you can make them believe in Jesus. You can't do it. Because it's not up to us, is it? They're born in sin. They remain in sin. Their hearts are corrupted and deceitful and desperately wicked. What's their only hope? Their only hope is that Christ would bear them from above. Folks, if you're parents, I'm going to take the weight off of you right now and tell you, you have a responsibility to raise your children in an environment and share the gospel with them, just like you'd share the gospel with anybody and love them and nurture them. Be patient, be kind, pray for them. But at the end of the day, it's not up to you, is it? No, it's not. God's sight is perfect. He searches our hearts. He's omniscient. He knows the thoughts, the intentions of the heart before we even speak them. His omniscience pierces our desires, our affections. There's nothing hidden from his gaze. Nothing. And, and I've got to tell you, that's either a very comforting thought for you or it unnerves you and keeps you awake at night. And if it unnerves you and keeps you awake at night, then we should probably talk after the service. Or talk to Pastor John. Talk to one of the elders. Don't walk out of this place knowing that you don't know Christ in a saving way. This is your opportunity. This is your chance to get right with God. Don't let it slip by you. Hear what I'm telling you. Don't think for one moment, beloved, that God does not know what you're really like when nobody else is around. 
You don't even know what you're like. God knows you better than you know you. That ought to scare you. Man's sin is personal. God's sight is perfect. Third, truth about depravity. Our situation is perilous. Notice they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So how many of you like family feud? Okay, survey says... How how many righteous? We polled 100 people, and the exact answer was, what's the number one answer? How many are righteous? Zero. Zero. Okay. See, the the result of God's evaluation here is not good. Uh, The language is descriptive of of a caravan going off a trail. And and you see, the, the fool evaluates God... And, you know, in his foolishness, he says, you know, there's, there's no God. And God looks down and he said, there's no one who gets it. There's no one who does good. You can attempt to evaluate me, but I'm doing the evaluating here, and I'm telling you, none of you are good. You're all disqualified. And as I said, his evaluation is the only one that really matters. The word all... I don't want to get overly technical, but it's placed forward again for emphasis, and uh, it has a definite article in front of it, which is the word the, right? So it's the whole is actually what it says. The whole of them have turned aside. The, The whole of them have gone away from God. Um, it, it's stressing... Uh, the corporate unity, the corporate solidarity of mankind. The the next phrase as well, together they have become corrupt, verse 3. It's actually the word altogether. So the whole of them, altogether is what it's saying, have turned aside from God and gone a different direction. It's kind of talking about, as I said, the group corporate solidarity of mankind and his rebellion against God. It's, not, it's like a cooperative venture, if you will. Which means that all of mankind is guilty. All of mankind is guilty. The word corrupt here, it's different than the one that's used in verse 1. It's a really graphic term that means to become sour, rancid, or putrefied. That's kind of gross, huh? Think of rotten fruit. It's a rare word in the Old Testament. It only occurs twice. Uh, Job 15, 16 is the other place it occurs. And in both of those occurrences, it it contrasts God with man. Um, It it contrasts moral purity and righteousness. God is righteous, man is not. And that's the point. Uh, He goes on to say there's there's no one who does good. There's not even one. Back to verse 3, you see that? And poetically speaking, this is really an emphatic phrase. Because that particle of non-existence that we talked about, there ain't no thing, remember? Aim. It's twice here. So if you're reading this, it literally says, there is not a doer of good. There is not one. Very emphatic. 
very emphatic. There is not a single doer of good on the earth. And how does God know that? Because he's personally looked and he's omniscient and he can't find one. So unregenerate mankind is totally and utterly corrupt, sour, rancid, putrefied, sinful. Not a great picture, is it? Not a great picture. When I was a kid, my mom used to buy me the little cans of chocolate pudding. You remember those? I think it was Hunt's or something like that. Nowadays, I don't know what they put them in, plastic probably. But in the old days, they were a can, and you had to like peel off the lid and crack it off. And I remember she bought me chocolate pudding one time, and I opened it up at school, and I licked the lid as I was off to do. And it was rancid. Have you ever tasted rancid milk product before? It's like acid. It's like battery acid. And it hit my tongue, and it was like... <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get it off my tongue. But that's what this word describes. It's, it's, it's putrid. It's rancid. That's mankind in his unregenerate state. Now, uh, Pastor John tells me that his small group is going to be in Romans 3 this week, and so this is good. You guys have all the answers. So, so, so why don't you turn over to Romans 3. I haven't had you turn around too much, but, but turn over to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse 10. Because the Apostle Paul, when he was heaping up his argument for the gospel, Romans is the, the largest treatment of the gospel, right? And when he's piling up his argument, condemning all of mankind, he actually included this psalm in this section. Uh, a litany of 14 charges against mankind, if you will. And he said, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. I'm reading from verse 10, and now I'm in verse 12. They have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. You know what that smells like, right? An open grave. Not good. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Mankind in his unregenerate state is universally guilty. Guilty. And, and the beauty of the gospel, as I said, the bad news always comes before the good news, right? You are dead in your trespasses and sins, right, Ephesians? But, but what? But we are saved by grace through faith, right? Here the, notice here this, this uh, long litany of horrible things comes right before Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans. It's right before the gospel. Again, everybody's guilty, and that's why God had to send his own son to be a substitute. 
so that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God gets the credit, not you. God gets the credit. Now, I'm going to have to summarize for the interest of time. I'm already going to run over, so I apologize. As I said, you'll never let me back again anyway. But uh, verses 4 to 6, uh, as you continue on, you see this depravity sort of played out in what the psalmist describes as almost like a holy war. It's like a jihad, right? It's uh, righteous against the wicked. Um, and the righteous have God on their side. The wicked don't, and so they sort of run in fear. Uh, it says, uh, do they not know they eat my people like they're eating bread? Um, we're not referring to cannibalism here. Uh, what we're referring to is they, they go after God's people in the same sort of calloused way as they would eat a common meal. That's what it's talking about. Uh, you can look at Micah 3, 1 to 3. I'm not going to turn there. I think I put it up there, but uh, we don't have the time. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, as I said, are very similar, but in this section, the psalm, psalmist over in Psalm 53 adds, uh, there they feared a great fear where there was nothing to fear. That little phrase, where there's nothing to fear. Uh, so uh, where's the there? It's uh, where they denied the being of God before, there... They're in great fear. Now, they greatly feared. Uh, they run and they hide and they don't even know why. They know God's there. They're condemned by their own thoughts. They're, they go after the wicked, but see, God is on the side of the righteous. And they know that. And so they fear. They fear. And the wicked... They know God exists, they just won't submit to his way of doing things. Now, you remember in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, see, God's holiness, and I'm not saying you have to be perfect, so let me get that out of the way first. God's holiness demands perfection. Right? You would all agree with that? God's perfect in all of his attributes, so he demands perfection, but all he finds is putrefaction. That's what the author is saying here. Uh, Spurgeon again, he said, Humanity, fallen and debased, is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a dunghill without a jewel, a hell without a bottom. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> As folks, if, if you're unsaved, if you don't know Christ in a saving way, then, then let me say, um, you need righteousness and you don't have it. You don't, you don't have it. You don't have righteousness, but you need it. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, there is one who is righteous. Who's that? Jesus Christ. He's the only righteous man who has ever walked the planet. And that righteousness in Christ is available to us. See, humanity is so corrupted, so defiled, that righteousness has to come from outside of us, outside of humanity. 
the, the Holy One of Israel had to be born into the stream of humanity from the outside. And he's the God-man. He's not just another man. He's the God-man. So he's perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness. And it is by faith in him that we get our righteousness. We don't become righteous. It's, it's, uh, the reformers said it was externos. It's outside of ourselves. Okay? Think about it with me. We're saved by grace through faith, and that, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. And what, what's the next verse talk about? Good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did he have to prepare them beforehand? Because they're not our good works. They're his. We're just walking in them by faith. See, John Calvin said, men are overwhelmed with an inevitable calamity from which they can never emerge unless they are extricated by the mercy of God. Jonathan Edwards said, you're like this little tiny spider, right? Dangling from a little piece of web over an open fire. Now he had a way with words. He scared people. <laughs> but that's the reality. I mean, you're, you're facing eternity and, and your only hope is Christ. Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, what? Speak to me. Christ died for us. Yeah. So thus we come to our fourth and final truth about depravity and Thank you for bearing with me as I go over a few minutes, but we'll tie it up quickly. Man's sin is personal. God's sight is perfect. Our situation is perilous, but thanks be to God that his salvation is preeminent. Verse 7. So human depravity is so total, so complete, that it necessitates that deliverance come from the outside, right? Right? We've established that. So what does David cry out here? Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. It's not going to come from us. It's going to come from God. This is actually a question in prayer form. Uh, who will give out of Zion salvation to Israel? It's, a, it's an idiomatic expression. It's best to take it as, oh, that. It's an exclamation. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. It's a petition to Yahweh, the, the only one who could possibly bring deliverance to fallen mankind. The only one who could rescue the righteous from the wicked. Uh, mankind has nowhere else to look for justice and merciful intervention than God Almighty, because he's the only one who is just and merciful. So the psalmist is crying out. He's, he's looking for deliverance from God. And, and the verb here for God's activity, he, he's returning, he's, he's revisiting his captive people. In other words, he, he's asking God to, to visit his people, his afflicted people, to end the suffering, to bring righteousness. And the good news is that next week we're going to hear that deliverance, what? We're on the other side of it, beloved. Deliverance what? 
It has come. In the form of what? In the form of a a humble man seated on a donkey. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now this is really like Paul's message to the church at Thessalonica. What he told them was basically, listen, when Christ returns, he's going to... He's going to take the side of the righteous. He's going to return them to himself, take them to himself in in the rapture. And at the same time they're being swept away to glory, wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. Those who have rejected God, who have persecuted the righteous, are going to get the full brunt of his wrath for the next seven years. And justice will be served. The day is coming when God will vindicate his people and exercise his vengeance. There's a famous old sermon by a guy named R.G. Lee called Payday Someday. It will be payday someday. So the point is, beloved, there's, there's really nowhere else to look for salvation. If you reject Christ, the writer of the Hebrews says, there's really nothing else for you. There is no other Savior. There isn't another one coming. This is it. This is all you get. So don't go back to Judaism. Stay in Christ. That's the message of Hebrews. Stay with him. How do we know Jesus Christ was righteous? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, every one of those sermons in the book of Acts emphasizes the resurrection. And it's funny, when you ask people about what they believe about the gospel, you interview them for church membership or something, you know how many of them leave the resurrection out of the gospel? But it's pivotal to the gospel. Why was Christ resurrected from the dead? Death could not hold him because why? He he was righteous. He was condemned for our sin, not his own. So death couldn't hold him. So the debate, I'll just end here. Uh, You know, we've seen four truths about depravity. Man's sin is personal. God's sight is perfect. Our situation is perilous. And God's salvation is preeminent. Right? Uh, the debate over whether or not mankind has totally fallen, what do you think? I think it's safe to say he's totally fallen. <laughs> uh, we have only to read the headlines to know that, right? But beyond that, you don't have to go beyond your own heart to realize that you need a Savior. Your own affections, your own thoughts, your own desires, they betray you every day. If you're anything like me, you sin daily. But praise be to God for Jesus Christ because my righteousness is not what's being evaluated. My works are not what will be evaluated. Whose is it? It's Jesus Christ. I stand in his righteousness alone. See, we need to cry out like the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, 
who will save me from this body of death? You know, the judge is pounding guilty, guilty, guilty. And you may say, well, what, what am I supposed to do? I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to make it right. Okay, so I'm guilty. What do I do? Well, the good news is that the cry for help has been answered in Jesus Christ, right? The scripture says, Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has provided you with a stand-in, a substitute, Somebody to take the full weight of our condemnation and sin on himself. His death on your behalf is the only thing that can assuage the wrath of God. It's the only way to obtain perfect righteousness. God demands perfection and only Christ has it. So it is by faith that those things are credited to your account. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we all know it, right? He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. He was perfect, so you don't have to be. So all human beings are fools apart from the wisdom and the deliverance of God. We're all under a death sentence. But the wisdom of God contained in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that what Paul said? You see, in my unbelief, I used to think that church and the gospel was only for weak people, sinners, people who needed God. What was the problem there? Yeah. I am weak. I am a sinner. I am in need of a savior. I just had a wrong evaluation of myself. Beloved, if you have not done so already, I would ask you to recognize your own folly, your own sinfulness, your own weakness, and flee to the one by faith who can save you from the depths of your own depravity. There is only one. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you, do not leave this place if you do not know Jesus Christ personally in a saving way. Talk to John, talk to one of the elders, talk to me after the service, but don't walk out of here until you've done business with God. There's salvation in no one else for no other name under heaven that has been given to man among men by which we must be saved or can be saved. Right? There's no one else. Let's pray.